The Little League field was two blocks from my house. Almost every game I'd walk down to the field. When the game was over, even if one of my parents had driven the car down, most games I walked home too. Those two blocks were a quick, happy walk when my team won the game. And those two blocks seemed like a mile when we lost. Almost always made the walk with a friend named Michael who lived even further down the street than I did. And usually another teammate or two part of the way till they branched off. And sometimes mom, and if not mom, she was waiting at home when I got there. Sometimes some of those friends who walked home were on the other team. And when the walk was a little longer, it was always good to get home. I learned from Little League Baseball, of all things, that when you've got to make a long walk home, it is really good to have companions on the journey and somebody waiting for you when you get there. A lot of times when we took that walk, those of us would go over the game, go over the game, try to figure out what went wrong try to figure out how we might have won. I don't know if we ever came up with too much, and it's strange how we never did that when our team won the game. And I think in the last few days, all the way around, from many angles, there's been a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking going on. And there's a whole lot we can start to think about and there's a lot of people around us who are feeling euphoric. And there's a lot of people around us who are in shock, if not depressed. There are many things we can do right now. We can take stock of a process. We can say, is democracy working for us? And technical fixes are easy. We can rattle off a whole bunch of them. I think we know what they are. For I think we always have more solutions than we use and more problems than we should tolerate. One of the things we can do is somehow find a way to make the democratic process really democratic, to really hear all the voices. I think one of the things that's going on with our practice of democracy is I wonder if it's a practice of democracy or if it's a practice of power which really doesn't want to hear some voices. And I think people on all sides can admit to that if we're honest. Maybe we can ditch the Electoral College. Like many institutions in our day and age, it was an institution created for a world that really doesn't exist anymore. Maybe we can publicly fund elections so you can't buy power. Many countries do this. Maybe we can make it as easy as possible to vote. National holiday, 
show up same day registration. If we really wanted everybody to participate, there's real simple ways to do that. Maybe we can find ways to organize ourselves into more political factions than just one on here and one on that side. Maybe we could think about proportional representation where we don't vote for candidates, but whatever political party or group gets a certain percentage of the votes, you get that many seats in the legislature. Some countries do that. Maybe we could stop voting for the candidate of our choice and do what the Unitarian Universalist Association will do for the first time when we elect our president next June. We'll use rank choice voting, where instead of voting for the candidate of your choice, you rank all the candidates on the ballot in the order of preference. And if no one gets a strict majority, whoever came in last, all those votes are redistributed to the second choice on those ballots. And you keep doing that till you have a majority winner. Some countries and some cities do this. Instead of mudslinging, it actually fosters cooperation and working together to form coalitions because you need second place votes. We could put on a ballot, an option, none of the others. So if you rank all the choices and you don't like any of them, you may just put none of the others, that you don't want any of those. And there are some places in the world where if none of the others wins, all the people on the ballot can't run when they redo the election. We got more solutions than we use and more problems than we should tolerate. But these are all technical fixes. And maybe, maybe what we're all going to need to struggle with is we have an adaptive problem. We don't need to learn how to make our system work better, faster, stronger as much as we need to figure out what's really going on. What are the questions we need to ask to find out about the problem that we need to solve? That's a lot harder. As I watched our country over the last 12, 18 months, it struck me very starkly, and I've had discussions with many clergy friends about this, how the country is right now a great example of systems work. Systems, whatever they are, family systems, church systems, societal systems, environmental, biological systems. You know what they don't like? Change. What happens to a system when change is introduced? The system reacts against the change. This happens in churches. Say a new minister comes to a church. That's a change. And there will be things in the system just of systemic nature that are going to react to that change, maybe positively, maybe very negatively. And maybe change might actually start to happen. And then what happens in a congregational system is the closer you get to a tipping point of change actually happening, actually taking place, actually becoming the institutional way of doing things, the pushback, the reactiveness gets more strong, more virulent, more aggressive. Our country's going through that. There's been a lot of change in this system in a couple generations that I don't think our system is really processed yet. We're, we're in many ways still getting used to the idea that everybody, not just white Christian men who own property, are people. On Tuesday last week, 
the line for women to put their I voted sticker on Susan B. Anthony's grave in Rochester, New York was so long it went out the cemetery. It lasted all day. There's some ways we're really not comfortable with women being equal human beings. Our recent history has seen a civil rights movement. It's part of an inclusion movement that, hey, we demand to be an equal part of everything. Followed by the gay rights movement where, I'm sorry, but I'm a homosexual and I no longer will be a second-class citizen. And this is true for all the things that have happened, right, in recent history. Our system is undergoing profound change. And there has been pushback and resistance and violence to all these changes all along. And we're getting close to a tipping point where the majority of people, not only our country, but the world and our human system are getting to the point where, yeah, what would it be like if we actually included everyone on an equal human basis? And the reality is there are people that are frightened to death by that. Sometimes they don't even know why. Because from their perspective, everything's always been fine. Well, of course, if you're the privileged and powerful, everything's always been fine. But if you're not, you know things are not fine, right? There's been a number of headlines this week that the only people surprised that a person won an election with hints and insinuations, if not outright statements, about white supremacy, the only people surprised about that person winning are white people. Of course. We're getting close to a major systemic change. A shift in values of the human family from what has previously been considered baseline to a new normal. And before we get there, as we know from systems theory, the system is going to face organized, strong resistance the closer we get to that actually happening. There's no guarantee how it turns out. Some systems need to do another regeneration cycle before they get to their change. Or maybe the change takes on a different form. And our biggest task is how do we live out values that we cherish in this process? Because this process did not end Tuesday, didn't start Tuesday. It's an ongoing process. All systems processes are ongoing. Growth, conservation, death, regeneration, it just keeps going like this. One of my Little pieces of learning I picked up in recent weeks was um, a very interesting piece in the New Yorker magazine called In the Heart of Trump Country. A reporter wanted to go see what life was like in the county that had the strongest vote for Trump in the Republican primary. And the article wasn't really about politics. It was about community. Because what the reporter found was the similar story with everyone she talked to in the county. 
whether the people were white or the children of Mexican immigrants or recent Arab immigrants or people of color, the first thing everybody talked about was how they felt a part of that community. And I found it fascinating when people got to discussing about who they were actually supporting in the election and why, of how much support went one way from places you might not think it would come. And chiefly, it wasn't a political policy-driven statement that they were given. It was, we are all in this community here together in this county, and we've all been left out. And I wondered myself how much of that I can miss. In recent days, I think a couple of different things have come out as people try to analyze the results of an election. And I wonder if we just missed some stuff, like we're not even going deep enough. Maybe our task is, what are the challenges that get us to actually form community across differences? And they're hard. They're hard differences. And the challenge is, is very difficult. I wondered how much I have not noticed, for all I talk about community, how much I can't practice that. Wednesday morning, the memory that haunted me was something that happened to me eight years ago, the morning after Barack Obama was elected the first time. I was driving to work, driving to the church, stopped to get gas, got out, started getting gas, pickup truck pulls into the pump across from me, guy gets out, starts getting gas, cowboy boots, jeans, baseball cap, gun rack in the back of the pickup truck, starts muttering to himself, and this is not suitable for church language. I can't believe that effing nigger won. My first thought was, I am not in Kansas anymore. I am not in Massachusetts anymore. Oh, what I thought of that guy. Keep me away from him. He's not safe. What a deplorable human being. And I held that image of that guy for eight years until Wednesday morning. Until I was him. It's going to be a long walk home. We got a lot of work to do. And yet, I think we also need to be careful that there's, not, there's also not a false equivalency there. Using that language and that idea that he had that in itself is divisive, and I think it's part of the problem that we haven't really addressed well enough, that when there's a systemic change, the people who have the most to lose from that change will be the most reactive against the change, and somehow you need to call to their attention that they too are valuable and we want them included. And that's really hard to do because sometimes it means the bridge at Selma, Alabama. 
without being harsh, negative, or violent back, but knowing that reactivity can't yet see you as a human being. For understanding where something comes from does not excuse it. And I have a feeling the bridge at Selma is going to be in our future in one way or another again in the coming years. Where despite our best efforts, the reaction against inclusion and acceptance and full humanity for everybody is going to need some kind of peaceful, organized, direct resistance itself. Oh. Maybe that's where we answer the call of love. You know, standing on the side of love, answering the call of love is an easy slogan. But love's call is multifaceted and complex and begs of us more than we're mostly willing to admit most of the time. But love is where we need to keep ourselves. But that doesn't mean we excuse things so that we're going to like everybody we need to love. One of my favorite lines from Martin Luther King Jr. is he said, I'm glad Jesus told me to love my enemies and not like my enemies because there's some people I find it very difficult to like. And I'm pretty sure that I would find that guy at the gas station mighty hard to like. But if I can't find a way to love him, I certainly don't belong up here. I don't have to like what people say or do. I don't have to like their attitudes. But I gotta love them. Because if I can't keep that center, I'm gonna become the monster I'm afraid of. And I'm gonna get reminded of that like I did on Wednesday when it finally occurred to me I'm that guy. Love is greater than like. MLK told us love is understanding, redemptive goodwill for all people so that you love everybody because they have inherent dignity and worth. What he said in his words, because God loves them. And that redemptive goodwill, that love in spite of everything, That helps us create the positive peace that Dr. King also used to talk about. That there are two kinds of peace. There's the negative peace, where's the absence of open hostilities. And I think along gender and racial and sexual orientation and immigrant and all kinds of other lines, what our progressive steps forward have created is a negative peace. I talk about tolerance all the time, right? Tolerance is not enough, the first step. We've gotten there, but it's a negative piece. It's an absence of open hostilities. Well, all we've got to do is look at the news or check online to note that we don't have absence of hostilities anymore. There's people being hurt. There are people who are scared because of who they are. There's even been violence breaking out. The only way to get positive peace, an actual presence of goodwill, and love between people is a long, long walk home, but a very possible one. And it's not like we're staring down at the beginning of the journey right now. 
We've been on it all along. And while we're on the long walk home, love being central, we've got to remember above all that darkness can't drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate can't drive out hate. Only love can do that. And when it gets dark, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. We don't excuse the wrongdoing. We don't excuse the hate. We don't excuse the discrimination. Heard somebody this week say, let us be clear that when we politically support people and policies that are openly racist and discriminatory, it is unreasonable to say we are not behaving in a racist and discriminatory way. It is no longer reasonable to claim when voting for bigotry that one is not a bigot. So doing would mean it's okay to treat people of color with violence as long as it's better for the economy. That it would be okay to be abusive to women and girls and not give them control of their own reproductive health as long as we can repeal certain health care laws. That it's okay to be hateful towards those of another religion as long as we can get the Supreme Court justices we want. It's not okay. But neither is it okay to dismiss somebody as deplorable because of the certain unhealthy and harmful attitudes they might have. And they themselves might not understand. It's not okay to accept those. But the love still has to be there. And how are we going to show the face of love, speak truth to power, in a way that doesn't use the hatred and the dismissal and the arrogance that people on all sides of our culture exhibit because there's change in the system and we're all anxious and we all don't know how to deal with this. Yet, still. We can speak truth and still speak love. Answering the call of love demands no less of us than to do that. You know, if we want to dismiss anybody as deplorable or we want to pass by on someone's equal humanity here because we've got a more important issue to go on, this story has been told to us is not okay way back from the Good Samaritan story, right? The religious guy's too busy going to an organizing meeting against the Dakota pipeline to stop and help the person on the side of the road. The liberal is too busy going to organize for their Democratic candidate to stop and help the person on the side of the road. But the guy in the pickup truck across from me got in gas, saw somebody on the side of the road and said, hey, you don't look like you're doing so good. Right? The Good Samaritan. We cannot justify greater causes to pass by the person left on the side of the road from any angle and from either side. We cannot do that. That Jericho Road is long. It's a long walk home. I hate to go to Dr. King all the time, but you know he's our, our most recent greatest prophet. The problem isn't not stopping on the Jericho Road. The problem is the road is so dangerous in the first place. But the only way we make it less dangerous is to create the kind of community 
where none of us have something more important than leaving each other on the side of the road. And that's our task. Tuesday night in Philadelphia, our greatest American theologian, Bruce Springsteen, stood on a stage and sang what he considers to be one of his best and most realized songs. It's what I started with, The Long Walk Home. Last night I stood at your doorstep and tried to figure out what went wrong. You slipped something into my hand and you were gone and it's going to be a long walk home. Throughout the song, he, he's a boy smelling the grass of summer. He goes and visits the town where he was born. He says, everybody has a neighbor, everybody has a friend. Everybody has a reason to begin again. My father said, son, we're lucky to live in this town. It's a beautiful place to be born. It wraps your arms around you. Nobody crowds you. And nobody goes it alone. Flag flying over the courthouse means certain things are set in stone. Who we are, what we'll do, and what we won't. It's gonna be a long walk home. And this is the question. Maybe what we thought we were and what we were taught to do and who we are and who we're not and what we'll do and what we won't aren't what we actually thought they were. Because I think, as Americans from all stripes, we tend to think of ourselves as maybe a little better than we are. We got this. But we've been on this long road a long time, right? We've been on this road since 1776, if not before. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We got a civic religion. It has its origin myths and heroes and gods. Plymouth Rock, Pilgrims, George Washington, the Star Spangled Banner. But like all religions, it can fall into fundamentalism where we over-idolize and find ways to have strict adherence to precepts set therein that aren't really there. Such as we the people. Because when we the people was written, it did not mean we the people. It meant rich white male landowners. It did not mean the native Indian savages, so quoted, exact words in the same document. It did not mean people of color, who were literally only three-fifths of a person. It didn't mean women so much, we didn't have to mention that they weren't included. It's always been a long walk home. The great American experiment has always been to get we the people to mean we all of us. And our road is not any longer after Tuesday to get that done. Maybe we took a wrong exit, I don't know. But the road itself isn't longer. We, the people, have a long walk home.
And now we're going to be called to stand for expanding the we. We're going to be called to expand the we in times where other people want to constrict it again. And this is going to be a time, I think, when our faith leaders are going to be asked to be present for direct action. There's already been a call to be present in Standing Rock the way there was a call for people to meet Dr. King in Selma, Alabama. A hundred of my colleagues went. There's going to be calls to be in direct action in Worcester, in Boston, in D.C. Will you understand if I go? Will you go with me? Tuesday was not the end of a journey, nor was it the beginning. We've always been on the long walk home. From where we started to the beloved community, the world we dream about. We need each other. We need companions on the journey. We need to be in community with those who are very different from ourselves. We need to be in community with others, with those who would exclude the others we're trying to be in community with. And until we find a way to do that, we're all poorer in spirit. The opposite, Jorgen Moltmann, theologian Jorgen Moltmann says, the opposite of poverty is not property and prosperity, it's community. The opposite of property and prosperity is not poverty, it's community. For in community, he says, we are rich. Rich in friends, rich in neighbors, in colleagues, in comrades, in brothers, in sisters, in resources. And right now, I think in many ways, most of us in America are not really all that rich in neighbors, in colleagues, in comrades, in resources, because we have too many comrades and family and friends and resources that are in great measure only exactly like us. And we need a diverse community for the long walk home because the more diversity we have in our community, the more inclusion, the more resources we have to handle whatever might come our way. It's going to be a long walk home. But don't get down about the length of the walk because the truth is it's always been a long walk home. We may be down a detour. We may have chosen another road. But the long walk has always been the one we're on. The long walk home from hate to love, from despair to hope. Our tradition itself has taught us that it's always been a long walk home. The arc of the moral universe is long, Theodore Parker said, but it bends toward justice. We have each other. We have the resources we need to justify hope and the ultimate victory of love. It's a long walk home. I'll be your companion on the journey. You never have to walk alone.